We'll be reading verses 2 through 10. And, you know what, let's, let's be standing for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Mark 9, beginning in verse 2, hear now the Word of God. <clears throat> and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we would see only Jesus this morning. Through your word, Father, enlighten our hearts and our minds to do just that. As we look at the transfiguration of Christ, may it inform us concerning our own transformation after the image and likeness of Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We are, through the Gospel of Mark, walking step in step with Jesus. We are aiming to identify the steps that Jesus took in his life and ministry, and seeing those steps, then seeking to identify how those steps might show up in our life. Jesus takes several steps in every chapter. We don't look at every single step in detail. But it is remarkable just to see the steps that Jesus takes in each chapter. For example, here in Mark chapter 9, in verses 12 and 13, one step Jesus takes is he helps others see how the prophecies of God have been fulfilled, and that is certainly a step that we can take with Jesus. He demonstrates a faith that stands apart from his generation. and Again, that's a, a step we can take as well. You see, Jesus takes the step of taking pity on those who are in need. Uh, compassion, uh, a key theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus calls others to greater faith, and we can do that in likewise manner. And Jesus teaches others about the true characteristics of what it means to be a follower in verses 30 through 41. Again, he takes several steps in, in each chapter. He takes several steps in this chapter. I do believe that there is unity in the steps that we see Jesus take uh, throughout his life and ministry, and in particular in this section 
Uh, there's unity in the steps he takes in identifying who he is and then uh, inviting disciples to accept his identity, uh, to accept who he is. Jesus is transfigured in these verses. And it does point us to our own transformation. And transformation, I think sometimes we might get the wrong idea that, that somehow transformation is what we do, that we transform ourselves. The reality is transformation is God's work. God transforms us. And specifically here, God transforms us as we seek to walk with Jesus. The more and more we walk in his steps, the more and more God is transforming us. The, this particular account turns on a single word. In verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi. That's a Jewish term. You may have a, a footnote that tells you that what that means is teacher or master. I prefer that particular term for this uh, particular instance, master. Now, Jesus is the true master. Yes, Moses is there. Yes, Elijah is there. But Peter seems to have missed that Jesus is a greater than Moses and a greater than Elijah. That Jesus is the true master. The transfiguration of Christ follows right on the heels of Jesus overcoming that temptation we talked about last week at the end of Mark chapter 8, where Satan, through Peter, is attempting, if he can, to derail the purpose of God in redemption. Verses 32 and 33, back in chapter 8. And again, even though it's the voice of Peter, we need to recognize that behind Peter's voice is the father of all lies, the devil himself. Hence, Jesus' rebuke, very sharp. Get behind me, Satan. And then, resisting that temptation, Jesus then determines himself to be the Lamb of God who will lay down his life for the sheep. But then he clarifies the mission and purpose of God in verses 34 and even into the first verse of chapter 9. That the mission of God is... Uh, also what it means for the disciples to follow Jesus. And it's rooted in self-denial and taking up the cross and following Jesus, losing your life so that you might gain your life. It culminates with that reference there. We didn't spend too much time looking at it because I knew we would be in chapter 9 looking at uh, the transfiguration. But he talks about that glory, how the Son of Man would appear with the glory of his Father uh, with the angels. He comes in the glory of his Father with the, uh, hol with the holy angels. Hmm, glory. Very interesting. He talks about seeing the kingdom of God come with power. Again, another very curious statement there at the beginning of chapter 9. And now here we are six days later, and Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John and leads them on a high mountain. Why them? There does appear to be a, I don't know if hierarchy is the right word, but there are circles, spheres of influence that Jesus has 
in his life. Where, yes, he's got the multitudes, the crowds. But even within the multitudes, there's that commissioning of 70 or 72, depending upon uh, your particular uh, version that you're using. Or he, he commissions the 70 or the 72 to go out. But even within the 70, there's the 12 that he is particularly close with, the apostles. But even within the 12, there's a core group of three that he is especially close with. That's Peter, James, and John. And by the way, even within that core group of three, there's one that Jesus loved. That's John. You get that in the Gospel of John. There are spheres or, or circles of intimacy, levels of intimacy within the followers of Christ, which is noteworthy and uh, very interesting. But it's these three that he takes with him on the high mountain. And it's there that he's transfigured before them. Very mundane things are utilized in order to capture the majesty of the glory of Christ. In the parallel accounts, you'll get the idea of his face as it's shown as the sun. Here, Mark emphasizes laundry. That his clothes are so radiant that no bleach could get him this white. Again, the mundane is utilized in order to try as best you can to capture the majesty of the glory of Christ. But again, words fail to, to truly capture the beauty, the majesty, the glory of Christ. It is a very touching scene that takes place here as the veil of Christ's humanity is pulled back for just a moment and the glory of his deity comes shining forth. It's noteworthy also that although Elijah and Moses show up, there's no mention of their radiance, no mention of their particular glory. And I believe that's intentional. They are talking with Jesus. It's Luke who tells us that they were talking with Jesus about his exodus. Uh, literally what the, the term there means in the original language. His departure. And indeed, what he would do on the cross. His cross work, which would be a new exodus that would lead people out of slavery to sin and to death and would lead them to freedom in life in him. And so you, you have this appearance of Moses and Elijah. Why them? They seem to be representatives of the law and the prophets. Moses, the one through whom the law came, Elijah, a great prophet in Israel's history, law and prophets. And that is one way of talking about the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And yet here's Jesus, and he brings with him a new testament, a new covenant. The disciples, and in particular Peter, makes an assumption here. Rabbi, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The assumption in this is, oh, wow, Jesus is equal with Moses and Elijah. He's, he's an equal to them. Peter does not understand. No, no. Jesus is a greater than Moses. 
He's a greater than Elijah. Again, it's Jesus who is radiating uh, uh, brilliance. He's the one who is, his, his glory of his deity is shining forth. Peter assumes, again, that Jesus is equal. And so let, let's make, a, let's make a, a spiritual resort, as it were, right here on the mountain. And, and we'll have three tents. We'll have the Moses tent and the Elijah tent and the Jesus tent. And so it is God who sets the record straight. By the way, verse 6, he didn't know what to say, right? We talk about Peter having foot and mouth syndrome, and every now and again he would put his foot in his mouth. He didn't know what to say, so he said might be instructive for us that when we don't know what to say, the best thing to say may be nothing. And so the Father, because that's the voice who speaks out of the cloud, bears witness, gives testimony concerning His Son. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is divine approval. Again, my beloved Son. The Son of the love of the Father. And he's not equal to Moses and Elijah. He's a greater than. Why, when the smoke clears, when the cloud that overshadowed them dissolves, they look around and they no longer see Moses and Elijah. They're, Moses and Elijah is gone. All they see is Jesus only. Only Jesus. And again, it's the Father who says, listen to him. Jesus gives instruction in verses 9 and 10 about uh, not to reveal this matter until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. Now, they may not have fully understood. They question about what is this rising from the dead business. But after the resurrection, that is when they can provide the full revelation of this. And they do, and we'll look at how they describe this, each one in their turn, in a few moments. So let's, let's go back through this. And we see, again, the Christ is transfigured, but... How does this inform our transformation as Christians? We are called to be faithful to Christ unto death. To be faithful unto death. Now, this is a particular text that we come to when we wonder about what's it going to be like over there? Once it's all said and done and we've uh, been faithful unto death, uh, will we know one another? And, and this is a text, this and the parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke, this is a text that we turn to. Will I recognize my mom? Will I recognize my kids? Will I recognize my father? Will I recognize Moses and Elijah? And the text seems to answer in the affirmative. The disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. Those are guys who'd been dead for centuries. And yet, the disciples had instantaneous knowledge that, oh, that's Moses and that's Elijah. And so, there does seem to be, at least indirectly, by implication, teaching here that would inform us that, well, yes, we will know one another. You will know your parents. You will know your kids. You will know relatives. And you will know the faithful departed, all of them. But we must not miss that in order to get there, first of all, we have to appear with him. This is Colossians chapter 3, a, 
a text that we looked at uh, last week in verses 1 and 2. I want to read verse 4 this week. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, He will come back. We connect this with when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. He's coming back. And we will see Him as He is. He will appear. It will be a glorious appearing of our Lord. And when that happens, then, the rest of verse 4 in Colossians 3, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Jesus is coming back. And He invites us to live life with Him so that when He appears, the one who is our life appears, we will appear with Him in glory. We ourselves will be glorified with all the saints who've gone before us. But we must never assume, like Peter does here, we must never make assumptions about the person and character of Christ. The Father is quick to show us that we must never assume that Jesus is like some other person in history or some other figure in history, whether it be a political figure or a religious figure or a, uh, a, phil- uh, a philosophy figure or a military leader, Jesus is unlike any of them. Indeed, if you were to gather all of those up and somehow put them together into a single person, Jesus would still be greater than that person. In fact, we can get somewhat specific here, particularly as it pertains to the religious realm, because there's a lot of religious confusion in our day. And so, for the Catholic person, the Pope or a priest is not the true master. For a Mormon, Joseph Smith is not the true master. For a Jehovah's Witness, the Watchtower is not the true master. For a Jewish person, Moses is not the true master. For a Lutheran, Martin Luther is not the true master. For a Methodist, John Wesley is not the true master. Uh, Let's get intensely personal, shall we? For those who are members of the Restoration Movement, the Churches of Christ, Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone are not the true master. The true master, a pastor, a preacher, an elder, a deacon, Jesus is the true master and only Jesus. And we know why that is. It's because only Jesus is the one who died on a cross for your sins and mine. Only Jesus can meet our need for salvation and redemption. Only Jesus can revive our soul through his word. Only Jesus can fill us with joy inexpressible. Only Jesus will raise us up at the last day. Only Jesus and his word will judge us at the final judgment. Only Jesus is the true master, and therefore we must listen to him. We would have the divine approval of our Father in heaven. We must listen to Jesus, but listening to Jesus must lead also to following Jesus as the true master. The one we look to and say, Rabbi, teacher, master, even Lord. That will 
lead to the divine approval. Today and every day, and then also someday at the end on the final day. When you look at the lives of Peter, James, and John, see what they write as they reflect on this particular day and this instance from the life of Christ that impacted their lives. We see that it had a very profound impact on their lives. For example, Peter writing in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, Peter 1, verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And you continue reading on there, it, it, what he has in mind there concerning the majesty of Christ is that Mount of Transfiguration experience right here as recorded for us in Mark's Gospel. That This experience here had a profound impact on Peter so that he does go on to become a leader in the church. He goes on to be even an elder in the church, as we see from 1 Peter chapter 5. And traditionally, we know that he ended up becoming a very willing martyr for the cause of Christ. Yes, the majesty of Christ on that mountain this day had a profound experience for Peter. It had a... As we look at John's gospel in, in John chapter 1, John writes there about the Word, the Word that was with God in the beginning, and who was in the bosom of the Father, who even the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John goes on and he says, And we have seen His glory. And I can't help but think that at least part of what John has in mind is right here, where he did behold the glory of the Son. Again, it had a, a profound impact on him. He became a leader in the church. And although tra tradition does not say that he died a martyr's death, he was willing, and there were those who tried. The emperor, one of the traditions is the emperor threw John in a boiling vat of oil, and he was unharmed by it. That wasn't his time to go. But he was willing to give his life for the cause of Christ. And then James who was there, it uh, appears he becomes uh, one of the first martyrs. Over in Acts chapter 12, he gives his life for the cause of Christ. Again, it had a profound impact on him that he became uh, a willing martyr for Christ. After the resurrection, they spoke about the event. They told everybody who would listen about the Lord, the Christ, who died and was raised from the dead. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we, we read Matthew, Mark, all record for us the transfiguration event. What kind of impact does that have upon us? Is this merely words on a page to you? 
Or does this event impact you as you see that Jesus really was God in the flesh? The veil of his humanity pulled back for a moment so his deity could shine forth. We behold, at least to a degree, the glory of our Lord here. And it's supposed to make an impact upon us. Such an impact that we seek to be transformed as we walk step in step with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord. Who and so as we behold the glory of the Lord, the Spirit within us is at work to change and to shape us. From one degree of glory to another, our faith is bolstered, our hope is kindled afresh, our character is shaped, and we reflect the glory and the character of our Lord in our life. You see, if we intend to stand before our Father and hear Him say, well done. This is what it means. This is what it requires. It means that we would be changed and shaped and more and more our life is a reflection of the glory of Christ. Following Jesus Christ, who is the true Master, it does lead to transformation. And God's mission becomes our mission. And we look more and more like Christ. His character becomes our character. We are pressed into the mold of Christ. It is a gradual thing. It is a progressive thing. Paul captures that in the language there. We go from one degree of glory to another. We increase and we progress in how the character and the uh, the glory of Christ is seen in us. And even as Christ was transfigured before his disciples' eyes, so throughout our lives, our fellow disciples can see the change and the transformation that takes place in our life. As day by day, we look more and more like Christ. We look more like Christ today than we did yesterday. And we are prayerful and hopeful that tomorrow we'll look more like Christ than we do today. And on and on it goes until Jesus comes back or he takes us home to glory through death. But this is the goal and this is the call as we walk step in step with him. Let us pray.